Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xianqian, the editor-in-chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to the May 2019 issue of the Heart Rhythm podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, search for Heart Rhythm Podcasts. In addition, translations of this podcast in seven other languages are available each month at the heartrhythmjournal.com website. The 40th scientific session of the Heart Rhythm Society will be held in San Francisco this month. The May issue of the journal starts with an editorial by Drs. Thomas Deering and Igor Efimov, entitled Heart Rhythm Society, 40th Anniversary, A History of Success. The article briefly summarizes the Society's contribution to research, education, clinical care, and advocacy. The featured article this month is a contemporary review titled Troubleshooting and Programming Considerations for Permanent His Bundle Pacing by Daniel Lusgarten et al. from University of Vermont. An accompanying video author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Morin, can be found at the www hotrhythmjournal.com website. Interest in permanent his bundle pacing is steadily growing. This review focuses on critical considerations and the troubleshooting options available to the implanter and device clinic personnel. The next paper is titled Left Atrial Appendage Closure Device Implantation in Patients with Prior Intracranial Hemorrhage by Hurt et al. from the Cleveland Clinic. Patients with atrial fibrillation and the prior intracranial hemorrhage were excluded from clinical trials of left atrial appendage closure devices due to perceived risks of perioperative anticoagulation. The authors report that they implanted the left atrial closure device in 38 consecutive patients with atrial fibrillation and the prior intracranial hemorrhage. They found that AF patients with prior intracranial hemorrhage tolerated short-term anticoagulation for the purpose of left atrial closure device implantation. This procedure is both safe and effective in this patient population. However, the ideal regimen of anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapies for this patient population remains to be elucidated. Coming up next is epicardial connection between the right-sided pulmonary venous carina and the right atrium in patients with atrial fibrillation by Yoshida et al. Ibaraki Prefectural Central Hospital, Japan. Ablation of the pulmonary venous carina is occasionally required for PV isolation. The authors performed intracardiac mapping in sinus rhythm to determine the left atrial breakthrough sites, including Bachmann's bundle, the fossa ovalis, and the right-sided PV carina. They found that PV isolation was not achievable without carina isolation in one-fifth of the patients probably because of epicardial connections present between the right-sided PV carina and right atrium. 
local anatomical variations of the muscle bundles in that region observed in previous autopsy studies may explain these findings. Next up is characterizing localized reentry with high resolution mapping. Evidence for multiple slow conducting isthmus within the circuit by Frontera et al. from Hall-Levet Hospital, PSAC, France. The authors studied 15 localized reentry atrial tachycardias with high resolution mapping. They found that localized atrial reentry circuits have multiple sequential corridors of very slow conduction, which contribute to maintenance of arrhythmia. Although the entire circuit was of relatively low voltage, the bipolar voltage in slow conducting corridors had an extremely low voltage at only about 0.22 millivolt, which was significantly lower than the rest of the circuit that averaged 0.50 millivolt. This information could potentially be used to design automatic mapping programs to facilitate the diagnosis, localization, and ablation of the most vulnerable targets. Linares et al. from the University of Illinois at Chicago wrote the following article titled Prevalence of Atrial Fibrillation and Association with Clinical, Social, Cultural, and Ancestral Correlates Among Hispanic Latinos. The Hispanic Community Health Study slash Study of Latinos. They found that the overall atrial fibrillation prevalence among Latinos was only 1%. The prevalence varied significantly across the Hispanic slash Latino background groups, independent of clinical or demographic factors. The lowest was among those of Mexican background at 0.3%. In comparison, the atrial fibrillation prevalence in non-Hispanic whites was estimated to range from 2.3 to 3.4%. These and many previous studies indicate that racial and ethnic background is important for risk of development of atrial fibrillation. The next article is titled, Obstructive Sleep Apnea is Associated with Non-Sustained Ventricular Tachycardia in Patients with Hypertrophic Obstructive Cardiomyopathy, and was written by Wen et al. from Fuwai Hospital, Beijing, China. The authors performed polysomnography and Holter electrocardiography in 130 patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Half of them had obstructive sleep apnea. The prevalence of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia increased with the severity of obstructive sleep apnea. Because non-sustained ventricular tachycardia is a risk factor for sudden death in this population, these findings suggest that successful treatment of obstructive sleep apnea may improve outcomes of these patients. Coming up next is left ventricular activation recovery interval variability 
predicts spontaneous ventricular tachyarrhythmia in heart failure patients by Porter et al. from King's College, London. The authors studied 43 patients with heart failure and implanted a CRT defibrillator. Activation recovery intervals as a surrogate of APD were recorded from the left ventricular epicardial lead while pacing from the right ventricular lead to maintain a constant cycle length. They found that the increased left ventricular activation recovery interval variability is associated with an increased risk of VTVF in patients with heart failure. The results of this study further support the hypothesis that increased repolarization variability may be used for risk stratification of patients at risk of sudden death. Fuchs et al. from Vanderbilt University wrote the next article titled Incidence and Impact of Early Postoperative Ventricular Arrhythmias After Congenital Heart Surgery. The authors sought to determine the incidence of in-hospital ventricular arrhythmias following congenital heart disease surgery and then to assess the clinical relevance of these arrhythmias during the post-operative hospital course. The study included 1835 patients. They found 18.5% had ventricular arrhythmias. The presence of treated ventricular arrhythmias was an independent risk factor for in-hospital death with odds ratio of 2.44. The presence of arrhythmia that needs treatment may worsen outcomes. However, whether or not the treatment itself contributed to the increased mortality cannot be completely ruled out. The next article is a novel pacing maneuver to verify the post-patient pacing interval minus the tachycardia cycle length while adjusting for decremental conduction, written by Kaiser et al. from El Camino Hospital, Mountain View, California. The post-pacing interval, or PPI, minus the tachycardia cycle length, or TCL, is frequently used to investigate tachycardias. The authors studied AVNRT, or autodromic reciprocating tachycardia patients, using a dual-chamber entrainment formula. Entrainment was confirmed when the opposite chamber accelerated to the pacing cycle length and the tachycardia resumed after pacing was discontinued. A dual-chamber entrainment PPI minus TCL value of greater than 80 milliseconds favors AVNRT over autodromic reciprocating tachycardia. This maneuver can be used to verify the observed PPI-TCL value in challenging cases. Coming up next is variant of ventricular outflow tract ventricular arrhythmias requiring ablation from multiple sites, intramural origin, by DBS et al. from St. David's Medical Center, Austin, Texas. 
A total of 116 patients undergoing ablation for symptomatic LVOT ventricular arrhythmias were enrolled in this study. Among them, 15 were found to have multiple equally early activation sites. Sequential ablation of all the early activation sites was possible in 14 patients, resulting in complete arrhythmia suppression. The authors conclude that intramural LVOT ventricular arrhythmias manifesting with multiple early activation sites require ablation at all sites to achieve acute and long-term success, particularly if none of the early sites is mapped at more than 30 milliseconds pre-QRS. While the sample size is small, this study provides practical guidance to ablating these arrhythmias. Next up is outcomes following implantable cardioverter defibrillator generator replacement in patients with recovered left ventricular systolic function, the National Cardiovascular Data Registry by Thomas et al. from UC San Diego. The authors evaluated 26,000 Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in NCDR ICD registry who underwent primary prevention ICD generator replacement. At the time of generator replacement, 7.3% of patients had completely recovered and 17.5% had partially recovered the left ventricular ejection fraction. These patients have a lower risk of midterm adverse outcomes compared to those with reduced LV ejection fraction following ICD generator replacement. However, although the risk is lower, whether or not these lower-risk patients can still benefit from ICD generator change remains unknown. Spinati et al. from University of South Carolina wrote the following paper titled Development of Biomarker Panel to Predict Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Response Results from the SMART-AV Trial a CRT response was pre-specified as a greater or equal to 15 ml reduction in LV and systolic volume. The authors studied 74 candidate proteins which yielded 12 candidate biomarkers, but only a subset of these demonstrated predictive value for CRT response. These proteins are the soluble suppressor of tumor genesity 2 or ST2, soluble tumor necrosis factor receptor 2 or TNF receptor 2, matrix metalloproteinases 2 or MMMP2, and C-reactive protein or CRP. These findings hold potential for point-of-care testing and integration into evaluation algorithms for patients being considered for CRT. A prospective study will be needed to determine if these biomarkers can improve the prediction of CRT response. Next up is intracardiac pulsed field ablation, proof of feasibility in a chronic porcine model by Stuart et al. from Beaumont Health System, Michigan. 
The authors examined the feasibility and safety of lesion formation using high-amplitude bipolar pulsed electrical fields delivered from a multi-electrode array caster as compared with the standard radiofrequency ablation. They found that intracardic pulsed uh, field ablation can be feasibly delivered from circular caster to create fibrotic lesion, lesions that have acute electrical effects without injury to non-targeted tissue. This new energy source may be useful as a new and improved energy source for caster ablation, but more studies are still needed. The next paper is titled Lower Sarcoplastic Radiculum Calcium Threshold for Triggering After Depolarizations in Diabetic Red Hearts by Popescu from University of Kentucky. They studied cardiomyocytes from a rat model of type 2 diabetes. They found that the threshold sarcoplastic reticulum calcium for generating depolarizing transient inward currents is lower in diabetic than wild-type cardiomyocytes. These changes favor the occurrence of delayed after-depolarizations despite low sarcoplastic reticulum calcium loads. These findings might be important in the understanding of the mechanisms of ventricular arrhythmia in patients with diabetes. Poloni et al. from University of Padua, Italy, wrote the following article titled, A Targeted Next-Generation Gene Panel Reveals a Novel Heterozygous Nonsense Variant in TP63 Gene in Arrhythmogenic Cardiomyopathy Patients. Mutations in genes encoding proteins of cardiac intercalatic discs account for about 60% of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy cases, but the remaining 40% is still genetically elusive. The authors studied DNA samples from 40 probands negative for known mutations. They identified TP63 as a putative novel disease gene for arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. The TP63 gene provides instructions for making a protein called tumor protein P63. It plays a critical role in early development. The author's discovery may advance the understanding of the pathophysiology of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. That article is followed by a contemporary review titled Depolarization versus Repolarization Abnormality Underlying Inferolateral J-Wave Syndromes, New Concepts in Sudden Cardiac Deaths with Apparently Normal Hearts, which was written by Hassegger et al. from the University of Bordeaux, France. It is followed by a contemporary review by Pereto et al. from IRCCS San Rafael Hospital, Milan, Italy, titled Arrhythmias in Myocarditis, State of Art. This month's HR's 40th anniversary viewpoint is written by Dr. Heim Willens of Maastricht, the Netherlands. The title is 50 Years of Clinical Cardiac Arrhythmology, Reflections from a Dutchman on an Exciting Journey. 
I hope you enjoy this podcast from Harvard. I'm editor in chief, Dr. Pen Shen Chen.